0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about protecting society with and from capital punishment. I mentioned before that I'm not really a big fan of dealing with current events in this particular show format. However, I think I need to, because if I want to deal with capital punishment and my perspective on it, it probably makes sense to talk a little bit about the current controversy going around in America, specifically the state of Florida, over the trial of Casey Anthony. No, I can't go into a lot of really good detail here because I'm not one of the many millions of Americans who followed this trial like it was a reality TV show. I also didn't follow the O.J. Simpson trial decades ago like it was some sort of reality TV show. My perspective on it is that this was a matter for the state of Florida to resolve in the interest of protecting its citizens from criminal behavior. And I'm not that interested in second guessing the state of Florida. And I certainly didn't feel like my own personal welfare was at stake in it. And that seems to be the kind of response that this case has gotten. Now, Part of that is because of how emotional it is. You have a case where a mother of a two-year-old has been accused of suffocating her child to death, concealing the body in the woods somewhere, and then fabricating story after story after story to make it seem as if the child was still alive. That was essentially, uh, in a nutshell, the accusation against her. And because of the month or more that went by between the disappearance of the child and the police uh, being able to recover forensic evidence from the scene of the body's recovery, there just wasn't a lot of good physical evidence to even pinpoint things like the cause of death. So uh, for some people, the outrage at Casey Anthony being found not guilty in the death of her child, Kaylee, sparked outrage because she she seems to have gotten away with something. Well, let's put a big allegedly around this entire conversation, because from the legal perspective, the state of Florida has decided that she is not guilty of the crime. Now, I think a lot of people have uh, spoken online already trying to provide an antidote to the anger by reminding people that being found not guilty doesn't mean that you've been found innocent. To me, the question of innocence is perhaps more of a spiritual question. The jury is faced with the question of saying you are guilty of the crimes you've been accused of or you're not guilty of the crimes you've been accused of. And in this case, the jury found her not guilty. And by all accounts, not guilty because there just wasn't enough evidence to support the kind of burden that the law puts on you to not have reasonable doubt, but also the kind of burden a jury is going to put upon itself if it's looking at a woman in her early 20s and deciding, literally, life or death. I want to start, though, with a quick story that I think gives us a sense of the two main issues that I'd like to cover on this question of the Casey Anthony trial. One of them being, how do we respond as citizens? How, do our, how does our legislature respond? How is Congress being asked to respond? That's where I'll start. And then I also want to deal with a perspective of what perhaps could have been done differently. What was the prosecutor's approach? And in the benefit of hindsight being 2020, what, what could have been done otherwise? Let me start, though, with a July 8th article published in Christian Science Monitor uh, with the byline of Chloe Stepney. And I'll start at the beginning, but then I'll jump forward pretty quickly. One of the most unfathomable aspects of the just-concluded Casey Anthony murder trial was that no one reported two-year-old Kaylee Anthony missing or dead until a month after the child's disappearance. That's something that Michelle Crowder has set out to discourage in the future, by making failure to report a federal crime. Ms. Crowder of Durant, Oklahoma, has created a Kaylee's Law Petition, which is circulating online at change.org, a social change platform. The petition has collected more than 475,000 online signatures by Thursday afternoon of the week of July 8th. This is two days after the Florida jury acquitted Ms. Anthony of charges, including capital murder and that she was responsible for Kaylee's death. Jumping forward, though, here in the article, people might be supporting the Kaylee's Law petition because they disagree with the verdict, suggests Corey Young, associate professor of criminal law at the John Marshall Law School in Chicago. This seems like it was just an instance of people just wanting to do something, and Kaylee's Law seems like a place where the outrage has been directed, he says. Crowder acknowledges that she is among those who don't believe that justice was done. When I saw that Casey Anthony had been found not guilty in the murder of little Kaylee and that she was only being convicted of lying to the police about her disappearance, I was sickened, Crowder says. I could not believe she was not being charged with child neglect or endangerment or even obstruction of justice. We'll come back later to this point of what she was and was not charged with. Picking back up with the story a little later. Is Kaylee's Law Really Needed? Current federal law requires police to report each case of a missing child to the National Crime Information Center. If the missing person is under age 21, the law requires police to file the case immediately, omitting the waiting period for filing missing persons on adults. And finally, jumping near the end of the article, with a quotation. There's an incredible number of laws named after tragic incidents involving children, says Mr. Young. By and large, these statutes are born out of rage and often passed by a majority without debate. The Cayley's Law Petition has prompted several lawmakers to learn more about their own state's requirements for reporting missing children. I was shocked to find out that we don't have such a law in Oklahoma, says State Representative Paul Wesselhoft, Republican, who says he has been receiving many emails and petitions from constituents who are angry about the Anthony verdict. I'm not surprised about the outrage because I'm outraged, Mr. Wesselhoft says. He intends to introduce a bill in Oklahoma's 2012 legislative session that would require a parent or legal guardian to notify authorities within 24 hours if a child is missing or deceased. If my bill were a law in Florida, then Casey Anthony would be facing another six months or a year in jail, says Wesselhoft who suggests that measures inspired by the Cayley's Law Petition would be more appropriate at the state rather than federal level. States investigate and prosecute most cases of child abuse, neglect, and death. That's the Christian Science Monitor article written by uh, Chloe Stepney the article itself raises a couple of really important points. And the one I want to deal with first is probably the more trivial of the two. It's the foolishness, in my opinion, of trying to pass too specific of laws in responses to matters of current events. So you have a case like this, it generates a lot of publicity, a lot of the publicity generated by the media who helped turn this into a circus. In the aftermath of the Drama not playing out the way a lot of people might have hoped or expected from watching coverage on television. The aftermath is this response that well we've got to pass a law. And almost every time we get a law like this that has a name attached to it, it's a reflection of us trying to be too specific. It's a kind of an old adage in uh in retail. Yeah, you know, I worked for many years in a record store and if a if a traveling company, if a touring Broadway play like Phantom of the Opera comes to town and your store is not prepared for it, either you missed the news, you weren't paying attention, or the additional stock you ordered, the extra CDs and tapes and T-shirts or whatever, uh, related to the Phantom of the Opera musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, was not enough of a supply. A lot of times what you'll see is the biggest mistake you can make in inventory management Is to run out of stock when the play is in town, when the musical is selling tickets, when people are going to it, and to miss a a lot of sales, to miss a lot of opportunity. But to come along two weeks later, after the play is gone, and the public has turned its attention to the next big thing, that's the wrong time to stock up as if you had the opportunity to do it again. You can never recapture yesterday's sales. And in this case, a lot of this reaction and lots of this, uh, this drive to create legislation seems to be that same kind of idea. People didn't like this verdict they've written to their congressman. They've, they've called their state legislator, and they want us to pass a law that will somehow correct this mistake. Now, most people accept the idea. The double jeopardy is attached here. It's one of the oldest ideas in American law, and it goes well, go back well before American law. So you're not going to be able to pass a law in Florida and retry this case. But maybe the idea is, well, if I I can pass a law to make sure that nothing like this happens again. And my issue with it is the like this part. It's too specific. The other example that I would use for these kind of laws, not reflecting legislation or the legislative process at its best, are buffer zones. Buffer zones to specifically protect women's health clinic or Planned Parenthood, or abortion service providers, uh, it just never made sense to me. To me, if there is a principle involved, that means that it makes sense to stop people from being too close or attempting to blockade a certain clinic. Certainly that principle also applies to hospitals. Why would you write a law that is specifically focused on one kind of medical outpatient treatment facility and not the others? Why would you even limit it to a medical scenario? Why wouldn't we pass a law that says that you can't uh, blockade or you can't create uh, too close of a protest to a dentist's office or a dermatologist's office? You know, you know maybe no one's opposed to good oral health care. Maybe we have no reason to believe that people are going to be out front protesting and waving signs and throwing things and screaming at people over their desire to clear up uh, an issue with their skin. But the principle is what our legislatures ought to be doing, ought to be getting together and say, you know what, let's take a look at the state of the law as it is and see if the state of the law as it is, is sufficient. And I have a friend who used to work in law enforcement who told me that, you know, he didn't see any reason for these special laws at all either, not based on my concern that the laws were too specific and that they were too targeted and that they were too politically correct, for want of a better word. His concern was that we already had plenty of power inside existing criminal trespass ordinances as a manager of a record store in a mall i've had personal experience with criminal trespass ordinances i remember one occasion in fact clearly we had a person in our store who came in without any compact discs in his possession and attempted to leave the store with a compact disc in his pants i had observed him closely enough that i had seen him in the soundtrack section take a CD, place it in his pants, and leave. So I went and I retrieved him and uh, detained him in my office, called the police. Mall security was on site for almost all of that. And when the police arrived, an interesting thing happened, which I I still to this day find a little bit disturbing. The police officer declined to uh, assist me in pressing shoplifting charges against this 16-year-old kid because I couldn't name the exact name of the CD that he had taken I knew it was a CD that belonged in the store. I knew that it was our inventory, our product, for want of a better word. But because I didn't see the title, I wasn't observing at that kind of proximity that it it wasn't good enough testimony. And that really bothered me. But knowing that I was a little bit outraged by that, the police officer did say that he would be more than happy to assist me in imposing criminal trespass ordinance against this individual and essentially saying that you are no longer welcome to be a customer in my store. That I no longer view our relationship as as, uh, as store to customer. I view you as a criminal element. And so what I did tell him was that until the time of his 18th birthday, he was no longer welcome in my store. If he stepped foot in my property, he would be arrested for criminal trespass. And that ordinance gave me you know a lot of support in terms of making sure that I wouldn't have to deal with this particular shoplifter again. I wasn't going to be putting him back into the pond and, and hoping to catch him again someday. I could simply say no. I'm done with you until you've had more time to mature, until um, I've had a little distance from this criminal activity that I unfortunately was not able to do anything about in the legal system, that I'm going to keep you outside my store. And just to let you know, this was not some you know store manager on a power trip uh, persecuting an innocent high school kid. This guy had attitude to spare. And essentially what he told me was, that uh, he wasn't going to obey that ordinance and that there was nothing I could do about it because he was just going to come back in with his mom and dad. And at first I let the police officer speak for me. And the police officer made it clear clear as day to this young man that the criminal trespass ordinance applied to him and it did not apply to his parents. But the presence of his parents did not give him the power or authority to enter my store. So I jumped in and I said, the bottom line is this. If you want to come to the mall with your parents, that's fine. Your parents can come in and shop. You can sit outside. You know, I I don't have any problem selling the latest new release to you through your parents. I believe, at least I have no evidence to think otherwise, that your parents aren't going to shoplift. (laughs) But you're not welcome in my store. He goes, well, what if I show up with my neighbor across the street who's a police officer? I said, well, why don't you ask him? He's a police officer. He'll be able to explain it to you just as well as this other police officer has. If you show up in my store with a police officer, he can come into my store and buy a CD for you. You stay on the bench outside. He came up with example after example after example. What if he knew the mall manager? What if his, what if his parents were friends with him? I, just, I interrupted him. I said, listen, if Jesus Christ comes to the mall with you, your Lord and personal Savior can come into my store and purchase a CD and you stay on the bench outside. And so my friend uh, had given me enough, enough of a reminder to say, yeah, we don't necessarily need any of these buffer zone laws if we're willing to impose criminal trespass ordinances aggressively and properly to make sure that a business doesn't get completely shut down because somebody has a moral objection to the practice of dentistry or to the practice of contraception. And here we have a similar idea in that the moment that the law is being written to target this one event, it's probably a mistake. The uh, woman from Oklahoma, you know, rattling off the list of things that she was upset by really hit the nail on the head. I'll requote her when she says, I could not believe that she was not being charged with child neglect or child endangerment or even obstruction of justice. Well, she's exactly right. Had the defendant in this case, been charged with those things, I believe the jury might have had plenty of evidence with which to render a verdict. I do agree with the outrage. It doesn't make any sense to me that you could claim to completely lose sight of a two-year-old child and you know not report it, not have any contact with authorities, not be instituting any sort of search, and to allegedly manufacture completely fictitious nannies and relatives and other sort of things You know, there's enough evidence here to suggest that a great deal of criminal behavior was going on, but the jury wasn't presented with that choice, or at least not with that choice alone. The jury was presented instead with a capital case. The prosecutor, in other words, was asking the jury to put this woman to death based on the quality of the evidence available to him. I want to ask a question. And while we ponder this question, I think I'm going to share some Bible verses, because I want to talk about this thing from a distinctly Christian perspective, and then I'll loop back around at the end and kind of bring it back to a more secular point of view, because the real topic here is not this case in Florida. This case in Florida may, at least in my mind, be forgotten in a matter of months. It's more the principles involved, and the question is, is the manner in which we apply the death penalty today protecting society? or is it endangering society? And it's not going to be as self-righteously satisfying as a yay or an A. This isn't a yes vote or a no vote for capital punishment. I'm raising a question where the answer is going to be kind of complicated, and I'm going to take a radical moderate position. So prepare to be frustrated if you've got a firmly entrenched polar point of view on this issue. But my question is, is this, and it's the one I want us to ponder before we begin looking at some of the ways that Christianity interprets this whole death penalty issue. Did Casey Anthony's alleged behavior merit the death penalty? There are people that I believe deserve the death penalty. There are cases where I think where society would be very wise to impose a capital punishment, but I don't look at the particulars of Casey Anthony's case little that i know about them and come away with the conclusion that she is as dangerous as osama bin laden that she poses the same threat to her fellow citizens as timothy mcveigh that she is as likely as any of the serial killers that i might name to kill again no i think that when you look at the particulars of this case what you're going to find is that society is probably not in grave danger from casey anthony that her freedom does not threaten the well-being of anyone and certainly not a lot of people, in the state of Florida. The reaction is more the outrage that she got away with something. And I don't dispute the idea that maybe it is true that she did get away with something. But why would you seek the death penalty? Why would you make this a capital crime in a case where perhaps, even if everything was known, everything was captured on videotape, there was a complete and full confession, the evidence was spectacularly without doubt that there still may be reason not to impose the death penalty. That maybe this is a 22-year-old girl who screwed up and screwed up badly, and maybe we don't necessarily need to put her to death for it. And I guess the question is this. Was the prosecution's inclusion of the death penalty and focusing on this murder as a capital crime an act of revenge? Or was it truly what it should be? an act of protecting society from a dangerous criminal element. Let's give that some thought. Hi, this is Will Tristram for those about to rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplesyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but, you know, we try our best. There will be some people who will disagree with me on the conservative or the right side of the political spectrum and say that I'm wrong to focus this thing on it being about uh, clear and present danger, protecting society. Sometimes a crime is so heinous. Sometimes it is so upsetting to the citizenry that the death penalty is the only reasonable response. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to suggest a little hesitantly that the use of the word heinous has become synonymous with a justification for revenge. Do we want to invest too much into these circumstances when the circumstances don't have any rational backing to them to say, yes, I have reason to believe this person will kill again. We need to put this person away for a very long time or possibly forever in order to protect society. Who exactly is Casey Anthony posing a lethal, deadly threat of violence to right now, at this minute? Now, I've had friends in church who've suggested to me that, well, she doesn't pose a threat to a person who's living and breathing and on this planet now, but she might get pregnant again. And I think we've got to be a little bit careful about whether or not we want to impose a death penalty against somebody for the threat they might pose to a person who does not yet exist. Seems to me that's a very, a very difficult standard to try to, um, you know, hang the state of your law upon. We've got to be more careful than that. But on the other hand, here in a minute, I'm going to get to the left side of the political spectrum and the liberal perspective that everything that I've just said about the death penalty is true regardless of the circumstances. And the only way to protect society is to ban it. Well, I'm not even sure that my liberal friends understand what we're protecting society from fully and completely, because let's say for the sake of argument, again, allegedly, let's decide that Casey Anthony is guilty of the crime she's been committed. I'm going to argue that the use of the death penalty is the reason she's running free Right now, the prosecution perhaps asked for a greater charge than the jury could stomach. And even though we expect the jury that they should be able to think it through and be more logical and and rational and studious about it, the reality is the level of proof you're going to ask of me to decide that somebody's guilty and needs to face a $2,000 fine may not be as high as it should be when compared to the amount of proof. I'm going to ask of myself if the answer is life or death. Again, we may say, hey, you shouldn't have a sliding scale. Reasonable doubt is reasonable doubt. You're a juror. You took an oath, so forth and so on. But in my mind, if what I'm doing is as permanent as a life or death decision, maybe I'm a little bit more likely to have doubt. You can call that an indictment of me. You can say that I don't have the integrity that I should. But maybe there's a little bit more going on from a human nature perspective, Again, she wasn't facing a combination of charges that was going to boil up to a cocktail that was going to put her in prison for six to 10 years. The jury was being asked to find her guilty of a capital crime, where the sentence was going to be the death penalty. So, in the midst of this, either or here, is the death penalty always right? Well, no. I don't believe that. Is the death penalty always wrong? Well, no. I don't believe that either. But here's the irony you're going to find people, at least from a Judeo-Christian perspective, who will use the Bible, use the Old Testament, the New Testament, to provide support for both of these polar opposite positions. So let's go there and take a look. It may not technically be the earliest mention of this life-for-life concept. Perhaps the more oft-quoted version of this concept is Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17-22. to If a man takes the life of any human being... He shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good life for life. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. So this is where we get this concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and it actually extends beyond that. And the irony to me is a lot of the people who are pro-death penalty and quote Hebrew scriptures to support their perspective would be outraged at the idea that someone might suggest that the proper standard we should use in our courtrooms today is a fracture for a fracture. If someone negligently causes a vehicular accident of some sort that breaks the arm and the collarbone of people in the other vehicle Um, we expect to go to court and see a monetary relief for that we expect money to change hands in terms of paying for medical bills and and replacing damaged vehicles, we do not expect the judge to say yes, and as a result of the fact that you are driving the vehicle and you are found at fault, violating traffic laws, failure to yield, whatever, uh, the punishment for you will be one broken left arm and one broken right clavicle. We'd be outraged. As outraged as we get as evangelical Christians, when we hear about some of the penalties established in the Muslim world, using very similar and very ancient concepts in terms of how do you handle a thief? Well, can it be that much different to say, if someone steals, I'm going to cut his hands off than to say, if someone creates uh, an injury and kills an animal, I'm going to go to his house and kill his animal. This is the passage of scripture that we're purporting to be crucially important to the way we do our laws. Um, And the reason that the death penalty is critical and can't be compromised and shouldn't be discussed, it's beyond reproach. That same passage of scripture is very clear. If I accidentally run over my neighbor's dog, he should be giving my dog a lethal injection. And do we really buy that? Or do we have perhaps as Christians, as evangelical Christians, do we perhaps have more of a New Testament point of view? Well, I'll get to the New Testament in a minute. First, I want to share my point of view about capital punishment, and it seems only fair to go right back to the book of Genesis. If Genesis is the, for want of a better word, Genesis of this idea that we should uh, take a life for the killing of a life, what does God do the first time he has an opportunity to deal with a capital crime? Now, I'm going to Genesis chapter 4, verses 9 through 15, and it's worth reading the entire chapter 4 of the book of Genesis. It's one of the more interesting stories in this early passage of Hebrew scriptures because it deals with the story of Cain and Abel. And depending on how literalistically you choose to read the first few chapters in Genesis, we're talking about the first two human beings born on the planet. So you've got two sons of Adam and Eve one named Cain one named Abel and uh, there's jealousy between them particularly from Cain's perspective because Cain is creating crops agriculturally and the first um, the first of his crops he's giving to the Lord as an offering and Abel is tending to sheep and cattle and livestock and giving the first of his uh, livestock to the Lord as an offering and the Lord is making it clear that It's important that the offerings to him reflect the sacrifice and that blood needs to be shed. This is, you know, biblically speaking, a foretelling of Christ's coming of the crucifixion. But for the purposes of this story, it's enough to understand that Cain is fuming with anger over the fact that his work is not as esteemed as highly in the eyes of the Lord as Abel's work. And before the passage I'm going to begin quoting, Cain murders Abel. Here's uh, Genesis four picking up with verse number nine. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood by your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. the two most common ways of learning are by word and by example, and often these two methods conflict with one another. hence the statement, "Do as I say and not as I do." If you're a parent, you've either spoken that words or I can assure you you've thought them before because you're dealing with somebody who doesn't have the um, human development, the intellectual capacity. To understand how we deal with the challenges of not necessarily being able to walk the walk, so with humans, this statement is an acknowledgement of our imperfection. But can the same be said of God? Arguments about the death penalty inevitably lead into Hebrew Scripture. Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy are, you know, repeat the famous statement: an "Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth," and in I'll acknowledge that passage goes on to include a life for a life as the legal punishment for certain crimes. Laws used to organize this ancient society were built upon God's word. How does this compare to God's example? Cain and Abel posed the answer. Rather than taking life for life and delivering a powerful message by killing Cain, God instead banished Cain from the community. Now, whether we can take a life for a life is one question, but whether we should is another question. To say the least, we must not be cavalier about death penalty decisions, and the reason I say that is, what if we accidentally kill Cain? Killing Cain is a sevenfold mistake. So how do we know? To me, the answer is in the New Testament. As a Christian, I've got an advantage over Jewish friends who are as radically moderate as I am. You know that they may have a middle position here on the issue, but they may not have the same scriptural foundation I do because I've just given a pretty fair impression of what the Old Testament has to say on the matter, or have I? I want to jump to the book of Romans chapter thirteen, and quote uh, from the middle of verse eight through verse ten, this is Paul speaking to the Church in Rome and trying to help them understand what Jesus did and what his death on the cross and his resurrection meant and how to reconcile that with the Jewish law. Now he's speaking to a Gentile audience, but he's speaking to a Gentile audience about the Torah. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up within this saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you've listened to any of these inappropriate conversations before, you know that I'm quoting Paul, who is in fact quoting Jesus, because Jesus did tell us, how do we understand the Old Testament laws? What laws should we be following? What laws do we not need to be obsessed about, especially not legalistically obsessed about the way the Pharisees were? Jesus had lots of things to say about the Pharisees who were obsessed with the quote-unquote letter of the law, and Jesus summed it up in the same way Paul has. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is, as Paul says, the fulfillment of the law. Now, On another day, we're going to come back to the idea of whether or not you can um, love your neighbor and have a lot of judgment to cast upon them for things that they do in the privacy of their own home with someone they love and care about. And we may turn it around and say, well, can you engage in an intimate and um, sacred interpersonal relationship? Not sacred in the sense of following a list of holy ordinances, but sacred in the sense of being um, sincere and held within a covenant between you and another person. And how can that be? How can that faithfulness between two human beings be construed to be somehow not loving your neighbor as you love yourself? We'll get back to that on some other occasion. But for now, I'd like to dismiss the idea that this is just a Christian concept, (laughs) This is something that Jesus said that Paul then later quoted. It also goes back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the book of Leviticus we get a lot of rules and regulations which provide for and even insist the death penalty be imposed upon people for a great variety of reasons. Well, by and large, Jesus has um, overturned a lot of those rules and regulations and reasons and replaced them with this one, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Or more specifically, do not seek vengeance. So let's go back to the original concept I asked. Was the prosecution's decision to make this case in Florida a death penalty case about something other than vengeance? If so, what was it? I do not believe that this 22 year old girl poses a clear and present danger to anyone who's currently on this planet. In fact, I would argue that perhaps, you know, at the expense of society, certainly at the expense of the loss of the life of this two year old. Maybe she's learned some terrible lessons that even if she has another child in the future would change her behavior. None of us can know that with any certainty. What I do know is that Casey Anthony did not pose a clear and present danger to most of the rest of the state of Florida. So the notion that the death penalty is appropriate, I won't challenge that. Uh, You have a capital case where a murder was committed. The law certainly provides for the death penalty to be on the table what I would challenge is whether or not she poses a clear and present danger, whether the death penalty was a smart idea. Or again, was it about vengeance? Was it about the heinousness of the crime and the neglect of a mom and the death of this two-year-old and how unnecessary it all was and how the lies make it seem premeditated and all those other sort of ideas? Was it about getting even? Was it about settling the score? want to go back to that Christian Science Monitor art article for a second and quote the woman in Oklahoma who's purporting that there be a national Kaylee's law. Um, she said this. When I saw that Casey Anthony had not been found guilty in the murder of little Kaylee and that she was only being convicted of lying to police about her disappearance, I was sickened. In some ways, maybe these laws are being um, promoted and supported by millions of people on Facebook and and the website that this particular law was was cited on in the article. Maybe it's about an anti-nausea tonic to say something heinous happened and it made me unhappy. And the only way I'm going to feel better is if some sort of equal heinousness occurs, some sort of balance to the force, for want of a better word. But what I would challenge is the idea that that's a Christian concept. It seems to run at odds. Now, I've let everyone have their say here. I've let Moses speak through Leviticus and through Genesis, and, and we've let the Apostle Paul speak. What does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says two things. First in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 39, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So Jesus agrees with the book of Leviticus to the extent that it says, do not seek revenge. And Paul is quoting Jesus accurately by saying that loving your neighbor as you love yourself fulfills all the law that you need to be worried about as a Gentile, or frankly, as a Jew in Christ. What else does Jesus have to say? Well, one of the more controversial passages in John's gospel, a passage that doesn't appear in every copy of that text that we've found from ancient copies of the text archaeologically, but is there enough times to have been deemed canonical, goes like this in the beginning of John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. And he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Now, I've heard two different perspectives on this passage from John's gospel and how it applies to capital punishment. I have heard uh, Republican candidates for political office in the 1980s and 90s talk about this passage and say, you know, it doesn't rule out the death penalty. Jesus was saying that it's wrong for you to impose the death penalty as the Hebrew people who are being, who are under the rulership of Rome, because only Rome has the power to impose the death penalty. This is not a wrong interpretation. That is actually the trap that the scribes and the Pharisees were setting for Jesus. Either he was going to contradict the law and the prophets and say that there was some reason why this woman should not be stoned for adultery, that adultery wasn't a capital crime in Hebrew society when it really was. Or Jesus was going to go along with the idea of stoning this woman and imposing capital punishment from the perspective of Israel when that you know power was fully invested in Rome. So it was sort of a catch-22. What's more interesting to me, though, is the idea that Jesus was letting them come to the decision on their own. He could have challenged them aggressively face-to-face and said, hang on a second, if you caught her in the act of adultery where's the man? We should be imposing an equal sentence here. He could have done it. It would have been consistent with his political views, but he chose not to. The thing that isn't clear is what Jesus was writing on the ground in each one of these segments between when he's asked for an opinion and offers a response. I've heard lots of talk about this over the years, uh, but we don't really know for sure. One of the things that I've heard was that the first time Jesus knelt to the ground. What he was writing was a quick shorthand list of all the sins that he knew had been committed by the men who were accusing this woman. Maybe they were embezzling. Maybe they'd been cheating their customers as a tax collector might. Maybe they had committed adultery themselves. Maybe they were uh, you know, actively involved in, uh, in coveting or other envious sorts of behavior, or be a born false witness against their neighbor. Perhaps on his first kneel down, he was writing a list of the laws of Moses for which they also could be stoned. He leans up and he says, I think whoever is without sin should cast the first stone and then leans back down to the ground. The way I like to think of this story, and I've got no real historical basis for this, it's just the way I like to interpret it. Jesus began writing the names of the men demanding this act of capital punishment be imposed next to each one of the specific sins that he had already kind of indexed for the purpose of creating a ledger to remind anyone who might have doubt about whether they had committed a sin, anyone young enough and arrogant enough to linger around long enough to think maybe he could justify stoning the woman all by himself. Because the older you are, the more experience you have, the more likely you're going to be, unless you're a complete liar and a hypocrite, to realize that, yeah, I've, I've done some pretty bad things myself. Maybe I've, I don't know, tape-recorded a date back in high school or something along those lines. It would make me think, yeah, I'm not in a position here to be self-righteous at all. So I think what Jesus was saying is, like what God established as an example in the book of Genesis, the death penalty exists, doesn't mean you have to impose it. But I'm also willing to grant that it doesn't mean that it should never be imposed. There's a difference there. I mean, it's kind of like the discussion or the conversation we had about abortion. You can't really make abortion not exist anymore and yet allow it to happen in a particular circumstance where there doesn't seem to be any good answer available To a very terrible criminal situation, in this case, same thing. Um, If I can think of one situation in the history of the United States of America where I think the death penalty would be a good idea, or would have been a good idea, well, then it needs to exist. Can I think of someone named Osama bin Laden? We didn't get the opportunity to put him on trial. Can I think of someone by the name of Timothy McVeigh, who vowed? that even behind bars, he would continue to encourage violent and aggressive acts against American citizens, that he would do everything in his power to inspire those that he met inside prison who would go out on parole to commit comparable terrorist acts. No, I think that there's a, uh, that it's not hard for me anyway, to come up with a situation where a death penalty might make some sense. It's just that we use it too often. And the number one reason we use it too often is when we're using it for revenge. And the reason that I would suggest that the use of the death penalty in this case has placed Floridians in more danger than they need to be is that if you think this woman was guilty and if you think she is a danger to others, the use of the death penalty probably has a lot to do with why the jury didn't think they'd heard enough evidence to put a 22-year-old woman to death. In other words, we could have put her in jail for 10 years, probably, but we couldn't put her to death. What does that mean for us? The Pollyanna Pollyanna Cowgirl Cowgirl Records Podcast. Podcast. So it's like someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci specifically. Tony Pucci specifically. Hi, this is Tony Pucci of the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play one hour of podsafe pop and rock music. You can find the show at PollyannaCowgirl.com or at the host podcast network site, Simply syndicated.com. Peace and love. What is the difference between a centrist perspective and what I'm calling a radical, moderate perspective? The centrist perspective, I think, seeks what I would call an easy answer. It doesn't necessarily require a lot of collateral. You don't have to invest a lot. Just like it's, it's easy to say, well, there's, the death penalty should never be imposed because we could be wrong. And you can't go back. You can't apologize. You can't make reparations if you've killed somebody. Or that the other answer, the other extreme, say the death penalty should always be imposed. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Too simple. You know what else is too simple? Too simple to say, well, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole is the answer. It's the compromise. It protects society from having to deal with any risk of a clear and present danger because you're taking a person, you're putting them in jail, and they're never getting back out. And yet you have this emergency hatch that if DNA evidence comes along or if there's been prosecutorial misconduct that actually proves that the person was innocent all along, well, you don't have to you know, manufacture a resurrection to begin setting that right. You're not completely without options in terms of apologizing to somebody and providing for some reparations. But the reason that life without the possibility of parole to me is too easy of an answer. It's an answer that does not make sense is that I don't see a fundamental difference between that and the death penalty. In each case, you're taking a person and you're saying, you are not getting out of this incarceration until you are dead. In other words, as a state, I'm imposing a death penalty against your freedom. I just don't have the courage to execute it. I'm going to wait until somehow chance or violence executes the death penalty on my behalf And pretend that the sentence that I imposed on you was never really a death penalty to begin with. Is there something more humane about saying for the next 30, 40, 50 years, you're going to be incarcerated in a cell? Um, fearing for your well-being at at the hands of other prisoners and guards, perhaps even homosexually raped on a regular basis, or you know, in the case of a woman defendant, maybe even homosexually or heterosexually assaulted on a regular basis, until at some point you quote-unquote give up the ghost. I'm okay with the idea of putting somebody away for a very long time. I'm not okay with putting somebody in prison forever and saying that somehow that is a more humane option. You've taken away their freedom. You've denied them whatever sort of humanity they're going to have, and you've exposed them to a violence that eventually will become terminal to them unless natural causes catches up to them first. So the biggest issue that I've got with it, and it's an issue that's going to take us to our different drummer, is the notion that we're just afraid to make a decision. If we don't believe that the evidence is strong enough to put somebody to death. Why would we believe the evidence would justify putting them into prison forever? Where if the other evidence comes up that might exonerate them, we don't have any other option but to go through the entire trial process over again. We don't have any sort of parole option available to us other than clemency by the governor or the president or something of that nature. No, to me, hard 40 was the state of the law in a lot of the states in America. When I was getting out of college, It basically said we are going to set a very long window uh, during which there's no possibility of parole, and it's still a life sentence. After 40 years, you then come before the parole board, but we're not going to let the parole board have a say in your good behavior until 30 years have gone by or 40 years have gone by. I would even be open to the idea of a hard 50. And I'm not sure it makes sense to give somebody who's in his 50s a hard 50 sentence. I think that the idea behind a um, hard year's sentence is to give somebody at least the chance, the possibility that if they survive, if they manage good behavior, if if they demonstrate that they are worthy of being considered for parole, they will have an opportunity to stand before a parole board someday. But that the horizon could be long enough to protect society against somebody who actually is a danger to others, who is um, you know, behaving in a way that we would describe as a serial killer, for example. If we decide that this serial killer is so dangerous we need to impose a death penalty, then that's one thing. But it's not the only option that should be in the toolbox. We ought to be able to impose a hard 40-year sentence. And the hard 40-year sentence I have respect for in a way that I don't have respect for life without the possibility of parole. The difference is that life without the possibility of parole is an excellent centrist compromise. It sounds so good. You've got the finality of the death penalty without actually having to make a decision to kill someone. As opposed to the risk, for want of a better word, you're taking that maybe that person who, in, who was dubbed a serial killer in his 30s could get out of prison in his mid to late 70s or early 80s and kill again. It's possible. It's extremely unlikely and unlikely enough that it's probably not worth worrying about, especially when my number one beef with the life without possibility parole concept is that it's refusing to decide. It's a cop out. It's society saying, I won't make the decision to put somebody to death, but I'm willing to put them on the shelf forever in the interest of never having to make that decision. It calls to mind some rock and roll lyrics that were also popular during this time that states were waffling uh, between hard 40 laws and death penalty laws were banning capital punishment. The line goes like this. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Those are the lyrics of one of the most famous rock and roll drummers of all time, Neil Part. Uh, Neil Peart is from Rush, and uh, really, I think most of us would not have known him from any other band other than that. His early music career as a rock and roll drummer um, did not leave a big trail of recordings behind. He wouldn't be the sort of drummer supergroup that you might find in a guy like Bill Bruford, who moved from bands like King Crimson and Yes and into other solo projects and other studio work. No, most of us encountered uh, Neil Peart for the first time with the band Rush. Would not have been with their first album, though. It would have come just a little bit later. Part joined Rush in 1975 with their second album, Fly By Night. He was called in to replace uh, John Rutsey, who was not prepared, at least by all accounts, to be a rock and roll drummer on a touring band. That They'd made an album together, the self-titled first album of Rush. But taking that on the road with uncertain prospects for success in the future led to the switch, in drummers now as impressive as the drumming work is of neil Peart, he's regarded as one of the fastest most creative drummers in rock and roll and uh, he's only developed in skill and musicianship over the years but i encountered him first with an album released just a couple years after fly by night a live album called all the world's a stage and he actually does some of his best work certainly his best solo work on the songs that were written and recorded before he even joined the band the best thing That Neil part contributed to the group rush was his lyrics. And he's one of the great examples and one of the fairly rare examples of a drummer who writes lyrics. In fact, he's the only one I can think of that at his level of skill and ability writes lyrics that he doesn't himself sing. There are some drummers out there in rock history that you can think of as being co songwriters, including the lyrics, but they also tend to be um, co singers as well, or even lead singers in their bands. Part was different, very comfortable being the accompanist to the group, very comfortable with elaborate time signatures and, and difficult and challenging solo passages. And uh, yeah, also somebody who I don't, I don't think has ever really stopped growing. In Wikipedia, it cites a, a moment in 1992 when Part was invited as a famous drummer at the time to be part of uh, a tribute to Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich's daughter, Kathy, bringing together a group of people for a memorial scholarship concert in New York City, and part acknowledged that he wasn't pleased at all with his performance in that moment. How did he respond to it? By saying, hey, I'm just a drummer on a rock and roll band. I I don't have any aspirations to be anything more. No, what he did instead was go back, learn from what he experienced, double down on his efforts, and was a crucial element in releasing a couple of different tribute albums to Buddy Rich called burning for buddy. These are albums, which I have a tremendous amount of respect for, because when you listen to them, they're modern interpretations of the original jazz releases. They don't sound like a rock and roller doing jazz. And Neil Part is not the only drummer on the album. It features a wide variety of drummers, both from jazz and rock, uh, performing a tribute to this iconic jazz drummer and big band leader. So from a drumming perspective, uh, Neil Part, the credibility doesn't even need to be explained. But the lyrics, I think sometimes we take for granted. Rush is regarded as a prog rock group. And um, following in the footsteps or being somewhat in the aftermath of bands like Yes, you know, creating these elaborate 20, 30-minute songs that I think challenge a lot of listeners and certainly drive DJs crazy. And um, the lyrics behind those songs were by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, The Work of part. Now, one of them was the song Free Will, which I quoted as we went into this different drummer segment where it has the lines, hey, you can choose uh, not to decide, but you still have made a choice. Those are words that resonate with me, even though I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of of Rush during that part of their career. I'm more of an early Rush guy from Fly By Night all the way to A Farewell to Kings or maybe Hemispheres tends to be where I I spend most of my time. It's not that I'm Necessarily a critic of albums like Moving Pictures, I just felt that uh, what I loved most about the band was beginning to drift away, and I think that a lot of what they've done in the period after that was even more um, disconnected to what I truly enjoy. But though that that line, you know, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. You know, not an original concept, not a philosophical idea that we can quote with the drummer from Rush, but nevertheless somebody who put it on the radio who put that pop idea out there and made it relevant. To me, the lyric that i remember it most for is the song Madrigal, and that's how I'll end this short, different drummer segment, calling out to anyone that, hey, if you don't like the music of Rush, if that kind of progressive hard rock is not your thing, it's worth dialing up this guy's lyrics. Uh, and if nothing else, read them. They're literate. They're profound in many cases. In some cases, they're trite and obvious, but you know you're going to get that over the course of a long career. And remember, his number one, uh, his number one task with the band that wasn't necessarily writing the words. He is first and foremost the drummer in a three-man rock and roll outfit. You got one third of the musical responsibilities there, and and just in terms of writing the music side of the song, can't be taken for granted. No, I want to end with the song "Madrigal" from the album "A Farewell to Kings," and these lines. When the dragons grow too mighty to slay with pen or sword, I grow weary of the battle and the storm I walk toward. When all around is madness and there's no safe port in view, I long to turn my path homeward and stop a while with you. He finishes the song in the end of the second verse with this line. In vain to search for order and in vain to search for truth, But these things can still be given. Your love has shown me proof. At least from a lyric perspective, sounds to me like Neil Part agrees with me about things like truth and love and eternal significance. We've seen evidence just this year in the state of Florida where the jury presented with the finality of the death penalty might be just a little bit more careful about how they decide to weigh evidence from the perspective of doubt, reasonable or otherwise. And maybe, as American citizens, and certainly as citizens in the state of Florida, we should be far less critical of how they weighed that evidence if we have the kinds of doubts about the death penalty that we've expressed publicly. So remember what Jesus had to say about it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And if your enemy strikes your cheek, turn the other cheek. Have we turned the other cheek in this case? Or are we trying to find a way to strike back? Thanks for listening.